you know, one of the questions I ask in second place, my new book, is like, how is it that artists can know things and yet not know them? How can an artist know something in, in their painting or their book and then be completely clueless as a human being? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that I do think when I look at my own work, I think, oh, isn't it amazing? I've like literally never learned a thing but I I you know I know it all and I put it in my books but I I I don't know it myself and I've certainly never learned it you just heard the voice of the British author Rachel Cusk who is my guest on this episode of how to proceed in this episode she talks about form and truth change and repetition the feminine personal and writing without feeling like a writer and as you might hear, I am Natalie Ullmann, who created this podcast together with the House of Literature. My name is Kjersti Skumsvall, one of the guest moderators this season. And I am thrilled to be talking today to Kask about reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now. You know that feeling when you open a book of an author you haven't read before. And you immediately know that this is not only a wonderful book, but a new writer that you will continue reading and rereading for years to come. This was my feeling after reading Rachel Cusk for the first time. The thrill of meeting a reinvention of contemporary prose and discovering a new literary friend. Rachel Cusk has won many awards, accolades and prizes for her body of work. She's the author of multiple inventive and compelling novels, such as The Country Life, Arlington Park, and the groundbreaking Outline Trilogy, seen by many as redefining the boundaries of fiction. And she has captivated critics and readers with her candid and perceptive memoirs, A Life's Work, and Aftermath. In 2019, she also published a collection of essays, Coventry, and shortly her upcoming novel, Second Place, will be published in English. Kask's work is equally insightful and innovative, witty and smart. For me, these books are mirroring the complex nature of memory and identity, place and language in both our own lives and in the stories we tell to better our understanding of each other and ourselves. And I am so happy to be talking with her today. Dear Rachel Kask, welcome to the How to Proceed podcast. In this podcast, we have some ritual questions. So first, I want to ask where you are right now. Can you describe the room you're in? The view, perhaps? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> every writer's worst nightmare, which is uh, a bedroom <laughs> sort of cobbled together with a desk to, to sort of become a, a kind of workroom. So, um, so yeah, I'm in a cottage um on the coast uh of england a very moving marsh landscape um it's a sort of salt marsh that uh, i have drawn great solace from i guess in this past year um so it's it's a a more peaceful <laughs> uh, i mean the, the piece is is rather of the kind that you you wonder if it will ever be interrupted and if you'll ever get out of it but um uh, for the moment it's it's a, a sort of tranquil spiritual place i see and so you have a new book coming out in may second place so yes well did you write that where you are right now uh, i wrote it um in a slightly different space but yes in this same landscape and actually a lot of the 
book is about an experience of landscape and location that that is very mingled with an experience of art um, and then the book is sort of asking I suppose some questions about the, the relative <laughs> status or the interconnectedness of those two things. You say that it's a quiet place and it is perhaps not as affected by everything happening in the world with the pandemic and everything? Is it? Yeah, it, it's sort of, it's always the pandemic here. Yeah, that's what I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's always empty and um, quiet. And uh, so, so, I mean, it's been interesting having that, that sensation kind of reinforced by um, a, a wider kind of sense of pause in the world. Um, yeah, it's a sort of double isolation. Yeah. Uh, so you're not in Coventry. I loved reading your essay, uh, Coventry. And yeah, well, perhaps you could tell what Coventry is. Well, in fact, I've never been to Coventry myself, <laughs> other than in the sense of the, that um, I use it in the essays, which is uh, this English phrase being sent to Coventry, um, which means that, that a person uh, gives you the silent treatment. Um, it's when a person or people stop talking to you because of uh, as a punishment for something that you've done. Um, so, but it is also a, a city in the Midlands of England. And this uh, place where you're sort of out in the cold, I imagine that that could be sort of a good place to write from where people are not talking to you and you're out in the cold <laughs> and the worst thing has already happened. Yeah, I, I think, um, no, almost it's the opposite because in that state of silence um yourself is the problem yourself is the the thing that that they are attempting to erase by pretending that you're not there so that's very much the opposite of of a place where you could create something oh i see yeah and it takes up a lot of space perhaps uh, thinking about it yes yeah yeah and i'm looking forward to reading your new novel in may and i'm also wondering because this is another of our of our ritual questions is what are you reading right now oh well i'm judging a literary prize if you can imagine oh, you are. <laughs> so, um, i'm I, i've just read 80 irish novels really um, 80 80 80 oh. irish novels uh so i am absolutely filled to the brim with uh the good the bad the ugly uh of, of, <laughs> I, I am fully acquainted with the state of irish literature today um, so <laughs> so that really has felt like sort of swimming in a in a in a great big kind of roiling pool of some sort um uh, so i'm going to extract myself from that pool shortly and um but before that i was uh what was i reading uh i've been reading annie erno i've i've read uh, sort of one book after another of hers um and been kind of interested in that and are you a writer that can read while you're writing i mean historically uh no i mean i think this is a problem that uh probably afflicts younger writers more because you're in such a state of sort of porousness and plasticity and and it's quite hard to to sort of know what you're doing or lay your hands on a, a, a sort of fixed identity so I mean when I was younger if I read anything then whatever I was writing would immediately <laughs> become a, a, a sort of it would sort of swerve off with the influence of, of what I was reading and become a kind of pastiche of that voice um, so I mean now that's something that I have much more obviously under control and and I, I 
I use reading to, to sort of very directly help myself. Um, and in fact, in this book that I've just written, it is itself a, a, a reuse of an existing text. So, so actually, that in this case, reading was, was a, a powerful um, and quite sort of political element of, of writing. Do you mind saying which text this was? It's a, uh, an old book, an out-of-print book um, from the 30s. Uh, it's a memoir written by a woman called Mabel Dodge Luhan, um, who was a sort of famous American sort of mover and shaker, a, a, a patron of the arts uh, who created the whole... Um, reality or sense of an, an art colony in Taos in New Mexico. Um, so she went to live there and invited um, a lot of writers and artists there. And one of the writers she invited was D.H. Lawrence. And so so her memoir, uh, which is called Lorenzo in Taos, um, describes her dealings with D.H. Lawrence. And um, her voice is such an extraordinary voice because to me, I immediately heard it as almost the 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 voice of history of, I suppose, female, well, lack of centrality of femininity in the culture. And it, it was amazing for me to open this book and find <laughs> what, what really seemed to me to be that that political sense of, of female, not silence exactly, because she wasn't silent, but she was uh, scorned. Her voice was scorned. So, so it, that that interested me very much because she's writing about you know this writer who, although he, of course, you know was <laughs> scorned and and sort of excoriated D. H. Lawrence, you know, in his time and afterwards, um, he he's still a massive cultural location where you know people tend to kind of fight rather than agree. But um, so so it was very interesting to me that those those two, her writing about him. Um, mm. And did you know this text uh, on beforehand, or did you discover it in the process of writing your novel? Um, I I knew about her. I knew that he had been there because I know a lot about him, and I'd read some of what he had written about her and how he himself had demonized her in the most extraordinary way. And and so it was so amazing <laughs> hearing her her speak. Um, so uh, and I, I stumbled across the text because I I had the idea of writing a, a non-fiction piece about Taos and the whole idea of I suppose a a, a literary or artistic colony. Um, this idea of a, a special sort of place, which I guess the question for me was, is it a place of exile? <laughs> is this what writers and artists want? You know, do they actually want exile, um, or or do they want a kind of utopia, a world of their own. So I was sort of interested in that and, and I started doing some reading for it and I came across her book that way. Yeah, I see. I want to continue talking about the writing process uh, and your latest book in Norwegian is Aftermath, mm. which is a memoir about the breakdown of a marriage. And um, I don't know if you agree, but it feels like it's someone at a breaking point who tells this story. I have some quotes I really like from it. One of them are... I am shaking with nerves. In fact, I can't remember what it feels like to be at ease. This ceaseless effort to manufacture normality is a kind of forger's art, so laborious compared with the facility that created the original. And um, in the end of the book, uh, you thank some people for treating you like a writer until you finally became one again. And I was wondering what it was like writing without feeling like a writer. Um, well, in fact... 
so much of the story of that book um, became uh, what I didn't know when I wrote those <laughs> thanks at the end of it uh, became the story of the aftermath of aftermath. So the reaction to that book, uh, which was the most violent and murderous experience of my life, I think probably uh, the, the hatred and disapproval in this country and it was an explosion of it it was one of those moments where clearly people had nothing better to think about and it it was an extraordinary thing in that state of vulnerability uh, that I had gone to some effort to describe which was not only my vulnerability but the vulnerability of you know children um, in in that situation and and the difficulty of, of finding a way of writing about that without compromising you know them or their experience um so so <laughs> to have a sort of sledgehammer taken to the whole thing um was quite extraordinary so I, I I couldn't express myself for a very long time after that and in terms of writing without feeling like you're a writer uh that that <laughs> that old writer was was uh, killed by the mob so uh I, I had a long process of rebuilding to do, which of course, you know, as with all of these things, and it's something that I write about at length in Aftermath, you know, these these dyings away of realities um, are so hard and, and yet, you know, only that way can the new reality be born. And I was very much more, you know, I thought divorce was that process, but in fact it was, you know, the the violent destruction of my book about divorce that that was that for me as a writer yeah I see yeah yeah you write about in lions and leashes this essay you write that in my experience truth had stubbornly continued to insist on itself the difficulties of continuing to create while bringing up small children the conflict between artistic and familial identity the attempt to pursue your own truth while still honoring the truth of others so was this something that you were thinking about when you were writing the book or was it a reaction that was uh, the hardest? Oh, I mean, the reaction was was a great surprise to me. And, and I think I've always made the mistake of the personal, the feminine personal um, is something that's held in such low esteem. Um, it's it's treated as you know, and we all know the <laughs> the quotes from you know Virginia Woolf that, that put it rather well about you know men writing about war and women writing about what goes on in their you know drawing rooms and one subject being treated as important and the other as as not. Um, so I think I've always made the mistake in writing about um, ordinary femininity and thinking that because it is not sort of respected as a cultural subject that no one will actually notice <laughs> that that I've written something. So each time I've been amazed by by these um, you know very violent reactions. I, I had the same reaction when I wrote about motherhood, you know, twenty years ago, and and um, I didn't see quite how uh, you know people could kind of find fault with with a sort of testament about divorce simply because um, it seemed to me there would be much more agreement as it were if there can be agreement about divorce it's it's a bad thing you know uh, I think the, the problem with my motherhood book was that it it threatened a sort of image of of motherhood that that you know very often women are, are sort of bent out of shape trying to to sort of remain complicit with 
so yeah so i i uh <laughs> I, I couldn't quite see what it what it how i had managed to to provoke people in that way um and you know something really depressing was i published a book on motherhood a few years ago and i think the reaction was a bit the same mm. even though it's 20 years later but you've write about women's writing in shakespeare's sisters from your essay collection coventry maybe this would be a good time for you to read an excerpt from this please um yes when a woman in the 21st century sits down to write she perhaps feels rather sexless. She is inclined neither to express nor deny. She'd rather be left alone to get on with it. She might even nurture a certain hostility towards the concept of women's writing. Why should she be politicized when she doesn't feel politicized? It may even, with her, be a point of honor to keep those politics as far from her prose as it is possible to get them. What compromises women, Babies, domesticity, mediocrity, compromises writing even more. She is on the right side of that compromise, just. Her own life is one of freedom and entitlement, though her mother's was probably not. Yet she herself is not a man. She is a woman. It is history that has brought about this difference between herself and her mother. She can look around her and see that while women's lives have altered in some respects, in others they have remained much the same. She can look at her own body. If a woman's body signifies anything, it is that repetition is more powerful than change. But change is more wondrous, more enjoyable. It is pleasanter to write the book of change than the book of repetition. In the book of change, one is free to consider absolutely anything except that which is eternal and unvarying. Women's writing might be another name for the book of repetition. You talked about Virginia Woolf, and it also reminded me of uh, the Chinese philosopher Han Fei's uh, eponymous work written in the 3rd century BC, uh, where there is an anecdote in which the emperor asks a question to a court artist. And he says, what is easy to paint and what is difficult to paint? And the painter answers, dogs are difficult, but demons are easy. <laughs> And I don't know, because I've been thinking about after reading your essay about the difference between writing a book of repetition and writing a book of change. And I mm. think that often or sometimes writers are given credit for writing books that are, I don't know, figment of one's imagination. Mm. Uh, but I find it just as hard to write about something that is everywhere in our daily life, like dogs or... <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's it's... Is it true that it's harder to to write well about those truths? Yeah, perhaps it is. And and I think now I've, I've reached a a strange moment where I see that I've devoted so much of my force and my energy to to this mundane, you know, to to trying to bring a morality and an aesthetic a justice to you know this, these areas um and it almost feels like selflessness <laughs> at this point it, it, i think oh i should have been having more fun you know i should have you know uh, got more of the the i suppose the glamour uh, the available glamour of of a sort of artistic vocation um but but you know 
too late <laughs> too late for those thoughts but uh, so what what happened after this year so uh, creative death uh, as i read that you said in into after aftermath and then you because after that you wrote a trilogy mm, yeah. was that more about having fun or did you what happened uh, it was a massive technical <laughs> thought process where i guess i realized that that you know i had understood writing as a technology you know for a long time and 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 yet that i suppose that discipline that that kind of objectivity because i was endlessly using it to serve the subjective world or what looked to other people like the subjective world um, because i was using myself almost kind of anthropologically um that that these two things the sense of a of a technology and the the use of myself sort of cancelled each other out in in a sense and and um all i saw was that 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 form was kind of malfunctioning and and i mean any true creativity is is so inextricable from the life that you live it it is the life the life that you live that that is its you know home and and um what what nourishes it so i think it's probably true to say that that you know i almost had to to rip myself up destroy myself and and sort of start again um in in this kind of reinterrogation of how a writing technique could sort of work <laughs> on on uh the 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 sort of true material of self and you know that was the thinking that i did after aftermath and and what i ended up with was to completely reverse the the relationship between the two things and I, and i sort of turned my technique inside out and so then the 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 sort of self <laughs> was was hidden and the the writing structure was was kind of all on the outside so that was kind of what people saw and um that that was an amazing uh <laughs> it was kind of a breakthrough for for me and um or just you know i thought it was a bit of a breakthrough you know generally and and it was just really interesting um yeah it was it was definitely the the consequence of of this very very sort of painful clash which which to me was you know so much about trying to create a correct discourse around femininity that that every single time the the <laughs> universal or, or objective was was made personal to me um by the personal people reading what i was writing yeah i see yeah because in the memoirs we uh, get to know the narrator better and in the trilogy uh, we get to know the people fame meets Uh, but we do get to know fame too what sticks with her and which stories touches her because otherwise she wouldn't have taken the time to retell them was my thinking that, yes yeah, yeah yeah no that's absolutely how it works yeah because some of what other people say are in quotation marks but most of it is quoted by her and this made me think of the greek tragedies you write about in aftermath about agamemnon and creon and how stories about others make us able to understand our own life So I was thinking, are the memoirs and the trilogy so different in that aspect as they may seem? Or do you know? Feel... <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, they just um as I say, it it's the, the trilogy is is a rearrangement of of the same elements because I understood that so, something in something out there 
was causing this this sort of malfunction in in the material and and it's it's something deeply to do with femininity and it, and its its ability to tell the truth about itself and the necessity in the culture for the the account to be rendered the accusation to be made subjectively to an individual so that this distancing from the themes can can occur and I mean I should have known it because that's what happened with my motherhood book um but but (laughs) it took me a few times to to learn that lesson okay so you do think about what the reception will be like and when you write no I don't think about it beforehand no no (laughs) I'm always wrong about it anyway Um, yeah okay and you write in your essay Shakespeare sisters also that having taken the trouble to write honestly she can find herself being read dishonestly. And do you think this is something that particularly happens to female writers? Yes. Yeah. And you think of your writing, uh, you write about, you say that a book is not an example of women's writing simply because it's written by a woman. Writing may become women's writing when it could not have been written by a man. And you consider your own books women's writing. Well, I think, um, as I say, there's, there's, you know, in this sort of a strange period that is an opportunity to take stock (laughs) because the the story someone's hit the pause button on on you know the the story of life you know I understand perfectly how and why a woman writer would would do you know would take on what I call male values um and, and essentially I mean not just a writer any artist any woman artist um and basically live in a male male cultural context and according to to male values and compete with men um and and yeah probably get a lot more out of it my motherhood book you know i wrote that 20 years ago and it's still i mean slightly depressingly as you point out <laughs> perhaps that means you know nothing's changed and probably nothing <laughs> has but you know it's still being read it's still being treated as news and you know and it's still I guess for some people helpful um to to you know have their reality treated as a reality um rather than as a, a personal problem <laughs> so so you know sometimes I I feel that I've you know achieved something or contributed something in this way but um you certainly have I recently read a life's work and I'm having a baby in a few weeks and uh, ah. yeah, I loved it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brave. And yeah, it's a bit sad that nothing has ha- happened in 20 years. But no. it, felt, it felt so <laughs> new. Yeah. But writing the trilogy, has that made you think of your memoirs differently? Um, yes, in a way, in a way, because it, it appears to have learned from them. The trilogy seems to have learnt from those earlier books. And so, you know, there's a temptation to to go, oh, well, in that case, you know, I wish I hadn't written the earlier books. You know, this is a sort of development. But, but you know, it couldn't, that development couldn't occur without the learning, you know, from from the earlier things. And so what is the status of, of those things? Um, I mean, again, this is a question that, that you know, any artist has to ask themselves. And, and you know, each artist has a such a different, road that they're obliged to to walk and and mine has been a very long one it's had to involve a lot of first-hand ordinary living um in, in order to to find out you know what it was given to me to find out 
so I guess I can't <laughs> I can't create shortcuts in in retrospect. Um, but but it, it felt it has felt I suppose relieving to me to have managed to to create something that doesn't involve the sacrifice of myself in the way that the earlier work did that doesn't jeopardize myself um and that that gives me some <laughs> not protection exactly but but uh safety yeah i can understand that but i'm have to say that i'm so glad that you wrote the memoirs as well uh i love them i think they're well because you know those those are a location in life you know for for a lot of people uh who who live in you know are forced to live because they were brought up and put out into the world not knowing the things <laughs> that they needed to know and they've had to find them out through through experience um so for for those people you know the record of that is is very helpful i guess Blanchot said about Kierkegaard that the more he writes about himself, the more he hides. Does yeah. that make any sense to you? Oh, I mean, perfect sense. And and I think, I mean, the, the great pleasure for me of, of rewriting this memoir that as I've done with my latest book was was being able to do that twice over <laughs> uh, because the person who Mabel Dodge Luhan you know was a very very good hider in in plain sight so so I've really enjoyed having some time to kind of linger in that concept really really linger and dwell in that idea of what one is doing by using oneself and yeah the, the infuriating stuff that one has to deal with being that kind of writer that you're called narcissistic and you're called egotistical in fact you know you are so far <laughs> from being those things <laughs> the fact is you think you're worth nothing uh, and that's why you use yourself to to create this work you use yourself as your own materials and and i, I see it as a very female you know that that scarcity of material and the need to use oneself is is very deeply embedded in in female identity and female truth as far as i'm concerned um so yeah it's given me pleasure to <laughs> to to sort of to go back to that place and look around yeah i was also wondering if i mean obviously the writing about yourself has a price um but when turning the camera the other side around like you do in the trilogy well what it feels like like we talked about how writing about others also say something about Faye in this case mm. but I don't know do you feel like it's just pain-free smooth the reception that you get when people read this or is have you been surprised in by this reception too or is there something yeah, that you I, I yeah. definitely have um I was very surprised that people understood outline <laughs> you know when I wrote outline and then I sort of looked at it at the end and and thought oh <laughs> you know literally no one is going to read this and if they do read it they're not going to understand it it's so I've been very very surprised it, it sort of worked for people and I think that the reason for that the reason for my surprise was that in the end it it, it required a, a leap of faith for me to trust that silence could do the work of anger of specificity of fighting to to 
you know, defend or put forward a truth that that actually this this silence could do that. That that really required me to to kind of take flight, <laughs> you know, to to kind of jump in in some sense and sort of trust trust in it. And I didn't trust in it. I I thought it would be. It almost felt like a betrayal of my commitment to justice and truth telling because I. I, I had put down my weapons. I was not trying to defend myself. I wasn't attacking anything. I wasn't, you know, fighting. <laughs> I worried that I had betrayed my my subject. So it was interesting that this this other way, this more diplomatic way, <laughs> this better, calmer negotiation was in fact a, a, a much quicker path to agreement, um, which of course, you know, I should have known, but a leap of faith, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting because I have to admit, admit that sometimes writing, I feel like when I'm doing something illegal, I get a bit of energy from it and it feels like I'm touching on something important. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can perhaps get further without doing something illegal is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's not just in... in in fact, it's very much not just a, a, an issue of sort of personal life and and personal truth. You know, generally the problem uh, that that for whatever reason in this moment in our world is quite a big problem, which is the differences between people and the impossibility of people accepting one another's differences and and of one side thinking X and the other side thinking Y and never the <laughs> never the two shall shall be reconciled. You know, it does. It, it requires different skills um, to to bring about agreement and the excitement of that you describe of of, I suppose, challenging an orthodoxy or or breaking through a a lie or a a, a false image um, is you know in a sense it's sort of the excitement of revolution. But but what <laughs> what is the purpose of revolution? Where does revolution actually get you? It, it, it's in the end, agreement is is you know peace. The peace of agreement is a, is a very different thing to aim for. Yeah. Well, this is a digression, but uh, your trilogy also made me think about publishing a book of women's writing. The end of it, which I loved, I imagined that you just have to lie there in the waves and waiting for the people on land to finish, who are looking at you to finish what they're doing. <laughs> that is, that's sort of publishing a book on women's writing. Yeah, <laughs> it did give me satisfaction to write that ending, and and in the end, I guess that was that was my little gift to myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, for having managed to get all the way to the end without anger, um, that that felt very much like a, the the fitting image for it. Yeah, and how was it to continue writing after finishing your trilogy with your new book, Second um, Place? I suppose I feel I'm at a, a sort of interesting point now where I don't feel that that myself is is all that much of a lens anymore. That that my existence doesn't doesn't sort of mean anything in the way that you know it has done in the past, where I've I've been in fields of life that felt very very universal, and and that therefore you know if I could describe them or say something about it, that would that was. A kind of useful thing to do, and now I don't feel that. Um, I don't feel that same access to uh, universal experience that I did, and I'm probably more interested in in um, the the sort of philosophy and morality of of the technical <laughs> in art. You know what it is as a as a 
as a technology. Um, but but at that same moment, it, it feels like this is not a time for culturally established people, <laughs> if I am that, uh, to take up any more space. And I, I think I feel that I've, I'm not sure I'm entitled to say anything further. And, and so that sort of questioning of my own entitlement has, has been quite a big thing for me. It's, it's, um, I, you know, I'm sort of, oh, is, am I finished? Is, is that, is my, my time is up? You know, I, I'm not, there's no need or, or purpose in, in me saying anything else. Finding the, my recent book in the way that I did, it really felt like I had discovered something, which was that, you know, if it's true that for the sake of argument, white people <laughs> have have taken up too much space, uh, too much cultural space, and they need to be quiet and you know let other people speak, uh, which I think is is essentially true. Um, that that you know there isn't very much silence left in the world. There are not very many green fields of silence that haven't been built on. And if if someone is going to build on them, let it be someone who has never spoken, who's never built. The rest of us. If we can find an old building <laughs> and and make our work in it, um, then great, you know. And so that's what I felt. I thought, okay, here's this abandoned structure that this woman made all that time ago, and and the reasons for its abandonment are still still true. It still has, you know, it's not writing a historical novel or or you know, it's it's still its abandonment is still a, a political problem. And, and um, you know, I when I remade it, I made it now. I made it of now. I didn't try and go back and capture, you know, Taos, New Mexico in the 1930s. I wrote about now. So that felt very satisfying. And I thought, okay, that, that might be the way <laughs> um, to just pick up all of these discarded vessels and and see if they can, you know, be be reused. Yeah, I see. Reading your books, I've been thinking about the relation between form and truth. And have you discovered uh, something new? Is truth the same to you in your books? Or is it something new now that you are using another text, as you say, someone else's um, truth? Yeah, perhaps? I mean, there's definitely, as I say, my, my ability to experience truth as an individual uh, has has really changed. Um, it isn't offered to me in the same way because I have, I suppose, more power, more choice. Uh, I can protect myself from things. I can sort of do what I want a bit more. My children are grown up. You know, um, all, all that I experience through myself is the, inc I suppose, a feeling of <laughs> increasing kind of genetic or biological redundancy as a woman in her 50s and and you know a feeling of of you know the significance of that object which I never particularly sort of valued that much anyway you know that that declining um so I guess where I'm going is is towards towards the what is kind of non-human in in the world and and how it can be recorded uh how it can be reverenced i suppose and what that oh not even non-human you know human too but non-subjective um in the way that a, a painter you know <laughs> uh has i guess more of a canvas um for for negotiating between the surfaces of the world and and his or her own self and it's that canvas that I want 
so 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 that's what I'm in terms of kind of language and perception. Um, that's where I'm trying to find, a, I guess, a different kind of of truth that that doesn't need to have a, a perceiver, <laughs> almost um, being more of a recorder, maybe. I suddenly remember that I have to ask you a question from another writer. I'm so interested in my own questions that I forget. <laughs> <laughs> but it has to do with the writing process. So maybe this is a good time. Um, mm. Because in this podcast, we try to have an ongoing conversation with our guests. And we ask every writer to create a question to the next guest. And your question is from Edwidge Danticat. Mm-hmm. You've said that discipline is a big part of creating a body of work. This is not something that's discussed enough. People expect writers to simply be inspired. What does discipline look like to you in the day-to-day of your writing? Which is wonderful, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that is that is a... A sort of good, <laughs> good, practical, interesting question. Um, I mean, one thing I knew right at the start, and I don't know how I knew it, but when I first began writing, I knew it that that a book, you know, takes quite a long time to write, and it does not get written unless you turn up <laughs> every single day and write it, and um, that means not doing some other things, and it means not, I guess, not necessarily enjoying enjoying yourself or enjoying being yourself um and that that you know and I mean I was published quite young my first book came out when I was I don't know 25 or something um so I threw away that idea of personal enjoyment or 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 sort of myself having any kind of thing that it needed or or deserved or or I threw that out and and did the work and I don't know why I was able to see that but but I was and every time I've had a book to write, I've done the same thing. And yet, in between these these pieces of work, uh, I've always been tortured by the image of you know the writer at their desk every day because that that isn't what I've done. That isn't what I do. I, I think and think and think and think and and try and conceive of or grasp you know the form that 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 is ahead of me. And and then when I have it, I I turn up and I I write it every single day. Um, so so I've I've always felt that that I was a a lesser <laughs> a lesser artist because I didn't have a, a sort of daily writing practice. And but in fact now that I look back, I think well, you know the reason I didn't was because I had children because I you know was was filling in you know the form of life um, in a in a more sort of ordinary as it were way um I didn't have I didn't give myself that freedom I didn't want it and and now it seems to me that the discipline is to keep in it to keep going somehow after all of these years I I am still you know writing books and it you know I see how at any minute you could turn left or right and find that you're you're off the road you're you've you've lost the you know and you can't get back on it um it, it's quite hard to to keep that direction and I don't know I don't know how it is that that I have uh, you know so many times I've thought I don't 
you know, I don't see how I'll ever write again. And and always I find that I am still here. <laughs> and um, that in the end, rather than the I write, you know, 500 words a day at, you know, in the mornings, um, which I don't, uh, that, that greater discipline or, or endurance, I suppose, or tenacity or doggedness or whatever it is, seems to me a quality in itself. Yeah. So even though you're not always at your desk, you're still thinking about what you're yeah, going and, to and, write. And I never know what to do. <laughs> when I'm not at my desk, I don't know what to do. Uh, so I'm very, very happy when I have something to do and I can go and do it. Uh, yeah, increasingly, I, I think, well, if the gaps between my books is going to get sort of bigger, um, I, I'm going to have to get a job or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, this reminded me actually a bit about what you write about in the life's work with children, that somehow when she's without them, she's not herself. And when mm -hmm. she's with them, she's not herself. And mm -hmm. because I think I had it like that with writing before I had children that when I was not writing, I was still thinking about it and perhaps even more than when I was sitting at my desk. But now that I think about that remark about children, <laughs> it yeah. makes me realize that it's still true, you know, that that um, dividing of your, of the self in two is, is irreversible. Um, that, that is still, it is still true for me, even though my children have grown up and gone away, it is still true. And we also have to remember to ask a question to Anne Carson, who is our next yes. guest. Do you have a question? <laughs> In fact, I have two questions because the other is for Emmanuel Carrier. Yeah, perfect. So his question, <laughs> which sounds a little aggressive, but it's not meant that way, uh, is to what extent have you experienced your masculinity as an advantage? Ah, that's very good. Great. And to Anne Carson... Which element of your work in the end has afforded you the truest self-expression, the personal or the classical? I like them. And your first question then made me think if can a man write a book of repetition? <laughs> that, that may be their future. That may be how they will save themselves is, is uh, doing exactly that. Yes, yes, I hope so. Uh, but what what male repetition is, I'm not I'm not so sure. I don't know. When it comes to form, because you write about truth and form, and in aftermath you write about the form of, well, this is marriage, but uh, yeah, form is safety and imprisonment, both protector and dissembler. Form, in the end, conceals truth just as the body conceals the cancer that will destroy it. And I don't know if you can compare marriage to literature, but um, how much does it mean to find the form of a novel? Uh, increasingly, sort of more and more, um, because it's about what I was talking about earlier, the justification, what justification can you offer for <laughs> adding to the noise, you know, adding to what exists in the world. So it's very important to me. It has been very important to me in, in sort of as I've got older to to know that, I mean, we all know what something looks like when, you know, <laughs> it doesn't have the correct form. I, it, it won't last. It, it it will end up looking ugly. It will end up cluttering up the place and and um, wrecking the environment. So so for me that that how to ascertain 
a true form um, is quite a big process and usually it involves trying to find that form in nature in what naturally exists um and i mean that's why in the end i've had such faith in the self because i think well okay <laughs> here here is you know the 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 one true form you are you are given to know and it's the safest thing to use other times i've managed to find a form outside myself that i trust enough to to think that it will um keep working and and won't i don't know lose its its integrity or or meaning yeah because do you think that finding the form is about how to be most truthful in a way and this is what happened when i was reading your books rachel that i was <laughs> that they are still making me think so uh, <laughs> uh, and when you're talking i'm I'm still like thinking about what you're saying. So it, my questions are altered while you're speaking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, because you also say that you uh, allow the truth to look after itself. So I was just wondering, is there a difference between what you know on beforehand, before you start writing and what you discover in the process? Because I can often find that when I'm writing and I discover something that feels true to me, it feels more powerful than when I know something on beforehand. I guess I, uh, I'm i a great one for needing to, to know everything about what I'm going to do. And the question for me is, can I perform it? <laughs> can I perform the writing well enough to, to represent, you know, what I want to represent? And that, that again, just speaking to the concept of discipline and you know that is one of the big things that has dominated it's come to dominate my writing process that that increasingly it is performance of something i have decided <laughs> to create and that that makes it very hard to sort of get in around the edges of it or or to reaccess it even um to edit it to change it um it, it's it's a sort of <laughs> i have to throw it away and do it again if i've done it wrong so so I think in terms of writing as a process of discovery I mean to me it is it is a mystery it is a one is living in a mystery when when you are creating and I don't know why I believe that that is a sort of sacred or inviolable process for me where you know I can perfectly easily pick up some book and and look at it and think well this person probably thought they were living in a mystery too but you know to me it's a mess uh what they've done and and I I guess I've become very very pernickety about the writing process I do not entirely trust it the whole advice of just the most important thing is that people give to new writers or writing students which I completely disagree with which is just write it all down and you can sort of sort it out later the most important thing is to get your writing down the page I think no <laughs> the most important thing is like not to do anything until you're completely sure that that what you're going to do is is you know worthwhile um so so I don't I don't really know I, I I think I guess I'll know at the end at the very end I'll look back and go okay <laughs> you know did I do it wrong um was was that that feeling of of I suppose transcending oneself which is when I know that it's working in in me or for me was that feeling completely like in my own head um or or 
did it actually mean? You know, one of the questions I ask in second place, my new book, is like, how is it that artists can know things and yet not know them? How can an artist know something in, in their painting or their book and then be completely clueless as a human being um, and, and you know that I do think when I look at my own work I think oh isn't it amazing I've like literally never learned a thing but I I you know I know it all and I put it in my books but I've, I I don't know it myself and I've certainly never learned it so um <laughs> so that's a sad idea but <laughs> you know I have a question about this but before asking you the question I would love for you to read from kudos could you please yeah He hadn't really realised his daughter was so good at playing the oboe, he added. She had started taking lessons when she was six or seven, and frankly it had always sounded pretty awful, to the extent that he had had to ask her to do it in her room. The squeaking noise set his teeth on edge, particularly when he'd come off a long flight. Often he could still hear the reedy, insinuating sound behind her closed door, and if he was trying to sleep off his jet lag, it was actually quite annoying. He had wondered once or twice whether she did it to persecute him, but apparently she practiced just as much when he wasn't there. Occasionally he had gone so far as to suggest that it might be healthier for her to practice less and do other things more, but this opinion had been met with much the same scorn as his attempts to impose discipline on the family timetable. And to be honest, when asked what he thought she ought to be doing with her time, all he could think of were the kinds of things he'd done at her age, socialising and watching television that he somehow considered more normal. As far as he was concerned, hardly anything about Betsy was normal. For example, she suffered from insomnia. What average 14-year-old can't sleep? Instead of eating dinner, she would stand by the kitchen cupboards, lifting handfuls of dry cereal to her mouth, straight from the box. She never went outside, and since her mother drove her everywhere, rarely walked. He had been told that when he wasn't there, she walked pilot every day. But since he never witnessed it, he found it difficult to believe. It had got to the point where he'd started to wonder how she was ever going to leave home and whether they might have to keep her there forever, like some kind of failed experiment. Then one evening, Betsy was playing in a school concert and he went along with his wife and with every expectation of being secretly bored, sat jammed into a small chair in the auditorium amidst the other parents. The lights came up and in front of the orchestra on the stage stood a girl he took a long time to recognise as Betsy. She seemed much older for a start, and there was something else, perhaps the fact that she didn't appear to need him or to reproach him with the problem of her existence that was startlingly relieving. Once he accepted that it was her, what he felt was the most terrible, ominous fear. He was absolutely certain she would embarrass herself, and he clutched his wife's hand, believing she felt the same way. The conductor arrived, a man he immediately prepared himself to dislike, dressed in black jeans and a black polar neck sweater. And the orchestra began to play, and at a certain point Betsy started playing too. What he noticed was how closely Betsy watched this conductor and responded to his slightest sign, nodding her head and lifting the instrument to her lips, her large eyes unblinking. Of such a silent feat of intimacy and obedience, he had not thought his daughter capable he who couldn't persuade her to eat her cereal from a bowl. Only after some minutes did he connect the eerie, snaking sound with her more literally. He had sat in enough audiences to know that this one was charmed, spellbound, and only then was he able to really listen. 
What he heard drew water from his eyes in such quantities that people began to glance round at him in their seats. Afterwards, Betsy claimed that she could see him weeping from the stage because of his height. She said it had been embarrassing. I asked him why he thought he had cried, and his mouth tugged unexpectedly downwards at the corners so that he tried to hide it with his large hand. To be honest, he said, I suppose I'd always worried there was something wrong with her. Thank you so much. And the reason I wanted you to read this was because it made me think about writing. Because in my writing, I feel like I have access to something that even those closest to me can experience as foreign, unfamiliar, and uh, like it's a separate part of me that writes. And Mm. those closest to me can experience it as foreign. And I do the same, especially when the novel is nearing completion, Mm. when the text sheds a different light than it has done in the process of writing it. Mm. And this was a bit uh, what you talked about just before reading. And I was wondering, you have just finished a novel. How do you look at it, your work, now that it is finished? Is it, does it feel like a part of you or is it? (laughs) Well, I have a very peculiar set of feelings about this. Um, I tend to, when I finish something, I completely reject it. So I can't, I can't read it. So this has caused terrible problems with like copy editing <laughs> or sort of checking the proofs at each stage as the book is in, in production that I, I I cannot bear to to look at it while it is still the product of myself. And only when it has gone out into the world and doesn't seem to belong to me anymore can I <laughs> can I actually read it um or, or read any of it so it, it's that's a very odd and I think that you know the line I wrote in Kudos that it's only when he sees what that the audience is enjoying her music that he himself can you know really really listen to and that that is very much um how I feel you know I don't think I necessarily find the creative process sort of shaming I don't feel ashamed of of my product you know in, in perhaps the way that I used to um but but I still I still pretend it doesn't exist or pretend that that I don't know about it or, or that I haven't <laughs> noticed it or um it's, it's a very odd thing. So so there is some great rejection that that goes on between uh me and my work. I see. And are you prepared for the reception this time do you think? Uh well, it's it's this is such a, a an interesting <laughs> moment. I mean, half of me hopes that you know, no one will be reading. Everyone will be you know living and be in a in a human space again. Um, I, I suppose I still have some old fears of of sort of being attacked, which which you know has happened to me many times. And and I never cared. I never cared. I I I, I had a a great suit of armor, <laughs> you know, and, and that also meant that I could never be nourished by praise. I didn't care if I got a good review or if someone liked my book or I didn't care about that either. So, so that sort of not caring um, ha- has lasted a long time. And I, and, you know, I don't know whether I, I'm still as, whether I still have that, that suit of armor. I mean, what I do know is that it, it doesn't matter what I've written. It, it <laughs> you know, it's, i I feel a great feeling of of sort of unimportance and and yeah a great desire for for others to to have their voices heard. I think I've had a, a lot of attention so I I probably don't need any more. <laughs> we have been talking about writing 
stories about ourselves, writing stories about others, also in your new book, and how stories that we make of our lives can be hiding the truth. And I'm still thinking about how the story of a novel can differ from this so that the art of literature can say something truthful. How is it possible to tell a story that is truthful? <laughs> I mean, I think I have a, a, a very sort of utilitarian set of rules about that. I mean, yes, there there is a, a truth to to putting together a number of true things. For me, the 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 non-interference, I guess, in in the, the base material of life is it's more of an act of service <laughs> rather than a a, a, a glorious truth telling. Um, I, I suppose I think that that finding, you know, rather as a photographer has to find the <laughs> the portion, you know, the photograph, the image, the portion of the world that will will say the most um, without sort of interfering in it. You know, that for me is is the all, all the skill is there um, in that uh, selecting of true material. Um, you know, even if A didn't happen at exactly when you said it did in relation to B or, or you know, all of those elements, um, I think, have to come from, from, you know, the base material of life. Because I was reading that in an interview about the trilogy that you only wanted what was essential. Mm. Which made me think, how do you know what is essential? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there's a game uh, in this country, I don't know if you have it in Norway, called Pick Up Sticks, where you drop a, a great bunch of, of these long, thin sticks uh, onto the tabletop. And they make a, a, a sort of pile and you have to try and pull out as many sticks as you can without the pile collapsing. <laughs> and I guess that's my, um, that's my method. I see taking out what is unessential uh, it, it is amazing how you you know what the structure you know what what will cause the structure to collapse if you take it out so it's it, it's um and i guess i've become kind of more interested in that as i've got older in 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 sort of taking out as much as i possibly can yeah that was a clear image thank you i will be thinking about <laughs> that next time thank you so much rachel kusk for being thank in this you. podcast it has been such a joy talking to you and I just want to go home and write now. <laughs> Thank you, Kirsty, and, and good luck to you. And I hope that, that uh, the, the world of doing things in person will come back soon and, and we can actually meet. Yeah, I hope so too, that we can meet. <laughs> this podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Rachel and Kirsty talked about.